Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We're currently going through a sermon series about King David in 2 Samuel. David was a shadow of Jesus, the King of Kings who had come to save us from our sin and offer us eternal life. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. If you would like, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24. I'll be getting that into that in a moment. Today's message is entitled, The Ground Zero for Salvation. Ground Zero for Salvation. Some of you are well familiar with Ground Zero. Many of you maybe have visited New York City, been to, been to the, the actual location where the World Trade Centers fell. Ground Zero, many of, I remember one time I was teaching and I said, you, you kids, you all remember Ground, where were you on uh, September 11th, right? And the kids were like, we weren't born yet. So I, knew, I remember that happened to me, and I was like, oh, wow, yeah. I, was a, I remember I was in elementary school and all that, and many of you adults know the day and time, the place, the location when you heard uh, about the attacks on September 11th when, when two aircrafts were hijacked by 10 Al-Qaeda terrorists and were flown into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York City, causing massive damage and explosions and fireballs and 110-story skyscrapers came collapsing and crashing to the ground. Ground Zero, however, was a term used eventually to describe the location where that great devastation took place and the cleanup and the rebuild that happened. It's, it was often referred to as Ground Zero, and yet that term did not originate there. Ground Zero was often used in relation to uh, actually, other destructive elements that happened, certain nuclear explosions that took place, it was described as the origins of the term came from the testing sites there in New Mexico where they tested the bombs that were used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's the location where the devastation took place in the center. That center location, that floor, that ground was known as ground zero, the point underneath the point of destruction. We talked a few weeks about, uh, ago about Chernobyl and the fallout of sin, and we, we likened that illustration of Chernobyl that happened there in Ukraine, that, that place where there was a nuclear reactor that di different things exploded, and, and, and there was a nuclear fallout that, that really affected the entire world, but in particular, that area of Eastern Europe. What if Chernobyl in that in that radioactive nuclear decay and all the devastation that came from that? What if from that soil that has been tainted and even today there's an exclusion zone that we cannot get into for it's too dangerous for the radioactive levels are so dangerous to people's health you can't even get close to that anymore. But what if from that place, from that ground zero of destruction and poisoning, what if from that soil came healing and life? What if you, if you could imagine a seed that fell into the soil shortly after that nuclear reactor exploded right near the, the site that took place and that seed fell into the ground and eventually from that seed over the years grew a tree that bore the fruit that had very unique medicinal properties and no Maybe it didn't grow certain things, but that, that fruit grew in such a way that it was unique into its way that we discovered that that fruit cured cancer. That, that, that fruit, maybe the, the leaves of that fruit would provide healing for the nations. 
a place of destruction and death, decay and doom. From that place could actually come no longer pain and sorrow, but from it could come great healing and salvation for so many. Consider that in relation to what we as Christians talk about when we refer to the cross of Jesus Christ. Seen and pictured behind me on these windows here, a cross, a symbol of healing and help, a symbol of Jesus, Jesus, this sense of Jesus is salvation, the Lord is salvation, Jesus on the cross, pictured for so many of us, many wearing crosses around their necks, describing our Christian faith, and yet an instrument used for death, crucifixion, public execution, now converted and changed into an image of love, of kindness and mercy and grace, a place of atonement and salvation. And today we're going to see another ground zero in 2 Samuel 24, a place where, where there was a great widespread national plague, death and destruction, yet from that place, from that ground zero will come healing and salvation. From at that ground zero, a place where David is going to step into it, there will be an altar built, atonement will be made. And God's hand of judgment will be withdrawn. His sword will be sheathed. And a hand of mercy will be extended to all who believe in Him. Today we see a picture in the Old Testament, yet a wonderful depiction of the very gospel of Jesus Christ that reaches out to you and to me today. A ground zero, yes, of death and destruction that, that removes and is turned upside down to make way for life and salvation. As we read in Romans 5, but God commends his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we look at 2 Samuel 24. Some of you astute readers might notice similarities to chapter 21 that we looked at several weeks ago. 21 and 24 are mirror chapters. And we're also going to be looking at later on at 1 Chronicles 21, which is a later rendition of the, history, of the history of 2 Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21 are also mirror chapters speaking of the same things. And so we begin with this census. Some of you might have headings in your Bible. It says David's military census. Let's look at 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. I want you to try to focus and listen as I read. 2 Samuel 24, 1, the Lord's anger burned against Israel again, and he stirred up David against them to say, go count the people of Israel and Judah. Go take a census. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the troops so that I can know their number. Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times more than they are. Why, my Lord, the king looks on? Why, oh, my Lord, the king looks on? But why does my Lord, the king, want to do this? Joab's giving warnings, saying this might not be the best idea. I'm not sure you have the right intentions as to why you are seeking to number the troops. Verse 4, yet the king's order prevailed over Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army left the king's presence to register the troops of Israel. And it goes on in the next couple of verses. It tells they went through all the different regions of Israel numbering the troops. 
Verse 8 says, and when they had gone through the whole land, they returned to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Verse 9 says, Joab gave the king the total registration of the troops. There were 800,000 valiant armed men from Israel and 500,000 men from Judah. David's conscience, though, look at verse 10. David's conscience troubled him after he had taken the census of the troops. He had said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, because I've been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. That's a key phrase here. Verse 11, David got up in the morning, and the word of the Lord had come to the prophet Gad, David's seer. Seer is another term for prophet. Verse 12, go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I'm offering you three choices. Choose one of them, and I will do it to you. Verse 13, So Gad went to David, told him the three choices, and asked him, do you want three years of famine to come upon your land to flee from your, or to flee from your foes for three months while they pursue you, or to have a plague on your land for three days? Now consider carefully what the answer I should take back to the one who has sent me. Verse 14, David answered, Gad, I've got great anxiety, I uh, please let us fall into the Lord's hand because his mercies are great, but, but don't let me fall into human hands. And verse 15, so the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the appointed time from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men died. So we begin with this concept of the census that is taken. It is an interesting chapter for, as we begin, it says some interesting things in regards to this. Interesting in the sense that it's hard to grasp the motive behind the issue that's going on. There seems to be certain details that we're not privy to, motives that we are doing our best to guess at. But as the best we can see as God reacts quite violently against David's motives to number the people. We see this in a way where it is very similar to what we talked about when we talked about Absalom. Remember Absalom a few weeks ago trying to take the throne, overthrow the throne, and he was all about himself. Do you remember how Absalom had his hair? He would cut it each year and weigh it, right? Absalom was all about himself. It was this pride that goes before a fall, right? We, we talked about in the story of, of Absalom, we did the little story, little bunny foo-foo, do you remember that, right? Hare today, goon tomorrow, or the roosters that are captured by the eagles, right? Pride goes before a fall. But we see a similar thing go on here, where David is at a point in his life where he begins to seek to measure his strength against the other surrounding nations by measuring the size and strength of his own nation and his own army. And Joab starts to point into it saying, you know, the Lord is going to give you the strength that you need when he calls you to do whatever you need to do. Why is it that you're seeking to number the truths? Why do you need to know this right now? It's almost as if like he begins to flaunt his strength and wealth against others. It's like counting the money that you have over and over and enjoying the, uh, the, the, what you have. It's like living in vanity, wearing flashy clothes so people look at you, driving fancy, opulent cars in order so people notice you. 
It's not that wealth is bad, but it's the sense of wealth that supposedly brings you power to make you feel that you're better than other people. And here, David seems to not be seeking to number the troops and to see the size of his nation and the power of his army in order to give God glory, but rather to do that in order to give David glory. And we see that through different inferences here and in 1 Chronicles 21. But he lives in such a way that operates in a very opposite manner that he's been operating throughout First and Second Samuel. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah tells us that the Lord humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. Hannah, Samuel's mother, says this. 1 Samuel 2 verse 9, Hannah also tells us something that David will live out most of his life. 1 Samuel 2 verse 9, for a person does not prevail by his own strength. This is a core principle that we have been learning. And yet David seeks to prevail by his own strength. Look at how strong I am, he says. First uh, Samuel 16, we see this worked out so clearly in the anointing of David. Remember when, when um, he, uh, Samuel goes to anoint David? What is the clear picture? That all the older, stronger brothers are not the ones selected. The little runt that's out taking care of the sheep, he's the one chosen. For what does it say? Do not look at his outward appearance for his stature, or his stature, this, how tall he is, like Saul, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for the humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. This is almost as if David is seeking to draft and conscript a, a giant army when they're not in a time of war, but rather at a time of peace. Seems to be a thing of pride. And yet, it's a side note for some later, if you'd like to study on your own. We don't have time to get into it today. But first one, uh, verse 1 of chapter 24 says, The Lord's anger burned against Israel. But if we were to look in First Chronicles 21, which is the companion later on, Chronicles is kind of the summary of First and Second Samuel and Kings. First and Second Chronicles is the chronicler, giving a concise history of Israel. In fact, First and Second Chronicles are the last books of the Hebrew Bible, if you were to find them in order. They view them as the last and the latest books in the Hebrew canon. But in First Chronicles 21, verse 1, it says that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. So what we have is this development of theological thought here where it is as if God is control and sovereign over this situation, yet Satan is working amidst in order to tempt David, and David falls for the temptation. I believe we have a very similar situation here like we have in the book of Job, where you have God and Satan at this war, this cosmic battle of good and evil, and God allows Satan to operate in such a manner. However, Job remains faithful. David here fails, yet we'll see his heart come through. God permits, David to tempt, uh, God permits Satan to tempt David. It's a very similar situation, I believe, to Job. But if we look at this situation that occurs, he numbers the people, and then immediately David does not have to be prompted by someone else. David does not have to be accused by someone else. David right away feels it within his heart. He knows he did something wrong. He knows the idols of his heart that he's worshiping are wrong. Look at verse 10 of first, uh, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 24 verse 10 says, 
David's conscience troubled him. His heart was broken. After he had taken the census of the troops, he, he immediately cries out to the Lord. He prays to God and, and confesses, I sinned greatly. Now, Lord, because what have I have done? I've been very foolish. Please take away your servant's guilt. We see right here the depiction, and I believe this is one of the reasons why those who, the writers of 2 Samuel end with this curious chapter of chapter 24. It's almost a strange chapter to end this grand narrative of David's life. But they end with this chapter 24 because I think it gives us the insight to David's heart, the heart of a true king, the heart that we're desiring to see in all good leaders and all good kings, yet the perfect heart that we will see given in the perfect example of the better David, which is Jesus Christ one day to come. But we see his heart because everybody, if you were to say, what, what, do, what, do, we, what do you know about David? Well, David, he was a man after God's own heart, right? What does that mean? I think we see it right here. It means that David was perfect and never made a mistake. No, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you've seen a lot of the messiness and the mistakes that David has made. But here we see David's heart come through. He immediately has a broken and contrite heart. Josh, Pastor Josh preached on this a couple weeks ago. God created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. This is after his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. A sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken and contrite heart. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, he says. You will not despise it. So what is a man after God's own heart is ultimately this good king with a good heart. A heart that admits when he's wrong. A heart that admits that he's a sinner. A heart that runs to God for salvation and seeks forgiveness from the person of God. He looks to God for salvation. That is a man after God's own heart. That's the king we are all looking for. A man after God's own heart has a heart that looks to God for salvation, not in himself or by his own might. For by repenting and turning to God for help and forgiveness, that is what we see in David's heart. And yet I love this phrase. And I think in some ways verse 10 of 2 Samuel 24 is a verse that echoes through the centuries till we get to the cross and maybe even echoes into you today. It echoes because it is a depiction of, of everyone's heart here when you come to a realization of your grave sin and offense to God. When you come to a realization of that, you say with David those very same words, do you not? Verse 10, in your heart, maybe if you have come to this point, I have sinned greatly. I have been very foolish. And then it is as if this phrase echoes through the centuries of history. Please take away my servant's guilt. Take away your servant's guilt. And, and we're called then to say, who will take away that guilt? Who will be the one to come and remove that guilt? Who could possibly come and stand before God as a holy and righteous substitute for my grave sin. Who could that be? David is crying that out. And in many ways, I think we cry out for the same thing that we find answered in the New Testament. And so, God comes to David, verses 11 through 15. And in a very simplistic way, I'll give it to you. He just says, hey, pick your poison. <laughs> you have three choices. None of them are really good. I don't know if you've ever been in those situations, but three years of famine, three, war, three months of war with your enemies, 
or three days of plague on the nation. Not really great options there. <laughs> I, I will pick, uh, Lord, uh, door number four, please. <laughs> um, any other chance there? Seems like this is a trap. Uh, I really don't know if I want to answer this. Can I just go and hide? I mean, these are the things that go through my mind of what, how I would respond to this situation. And yet we're reminded here again with the fallout of sin, the guilt and the shame can be removed, but the consequences of sin remain. The consequences of our sin, both of Absalom and both of David, have been fleshed out for us. And here we see the consequences of David's sin on a national level being fleshed out again. But you're going to see redemption and healing and salvation be fleshed out for all as well. The grace of God and the wrath of God coming and converging in this chapter. So the prophet Gad comes to David and tells him these things. You have three choices Three years of famine, three months of war from my enemies, or three days of plague from God. And David, again, shows the heart. He shows the heart. What does his heart do? He responds with wisdom. And he says, ultimately, do not let me fall into the hands of mankind. Mankind and human beings and my enemies are wicked, merciless people. But let me fall into the hands of God, for he is a God of mercy and grace. <laughs> it's an incredible statement. Let me not, I don't want three months of, of, of war with enemies. I don't want us to try to have to figure out how to avoid famine. We are terrible in these things. But rather, Lord, let me fall into your hands. I know you will be merciful. I know you will be just. I fall into your hands and I let you decide. I fall into the hands of God. God says in verse 15, the Lord sent a plague on Israel and from that morning until the appointed time from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men died. A plague. I remember if you remember in 2020 where they always had the counter and ticker on every place you looked of how many people passed away that day. But in some ways I can imagine a similar situation. People passing away in this great wide national plague. You think this is a terrible, destructive thing. How could God do this? And yet we could also say, how can mankind do this to each other? We did this to each other on August 6, 1945, World War II. An American B-29 bomber dropped the world's first deployed atomic bomb over Japanese city of Hiroshima. The explosion immediately killed an estimated 80,000 people in a second. We do this to each other. I'm not saying here to give you a talk about right or wrong in the times of war and a just war. I'm, I'm just speaking about how the grave destruction that mankind can lay upon one another. God's judgment is just upon our evil that we seek to rebel against him in. In verse 16 here as we read down through, reminds us though that God is still a God of mercy. Yes, a God is just, yet he is merciful and loving. Look at verse 16. The angel extended his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it. This is a similar depiction of the angel of death passing over in Exodus as we see in the 10th plague. The angel extended his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, but the Lord relented concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, enough, withdraw your hand now. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Ar Ar Arana, the Jebusite. 
First Chronicles 21 gives us the name Ornan the Jebusite, but it's the same family here. Verse 17, when David saw the angels striking the people, he said these words. Listen to David's words. He immediately prays as he sees the plague and the destruction. He says, look, I am the one who has sinned. I am the one who has done wrong. David steps before the people of Israel as a substitute for behalf of people's sin. And he says, I am the one. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's family. Against me. Then he goes on in verse 18, God came to David and said at that day, for it seems at that moment the plague stopped when David steps forward as a substitute. And then in order to confirm that substitutionary atonement, we see in verse 18, God came to David and that day said to him, go up and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. David went up in obedience to God's command just as the Lord commanded. Arana looked down and saw the king and the servants coming toward him, and he went out and paid homage to the king and of his face to the ground. And Arana said, why is the Lord, the king, come to his servant, someone like me? David replied, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar for the Lord so the plague on the people may be halted. Arana said to David, my lord, the king, take whatever you want. It's yours. I offer it. Here are the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing sledges, and the ox for the wood. Your majesty, Arana, gives everything here to the king. And he said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Verse 24, the king answered, Arana, no, I insist on buying it for you for a price. For I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 20 ounces of silver. Verse 25, he built an altar to the Lord there, offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, meaning We've brought the people back. He's reconciled them in peace. Then the Lord was receptive to prayer in the land once again, and the plague on Israel ended. An extraordinary moment. We see this in this angel of death halting at this place, this ground zero, the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. David then prays and says, please, Lord, stop this plague. The Lord halts the plague. David then goes and buys that threshing floor. And on that threshing floor, he builds an altar. He builds an altar. His prayer is extraordinarily prophetic. David prays in such a way in verse 17. One of the most beautiful depictions of the gospel that I think we have in the entire Old Testament is chapter 24 here. David says to everyone, look, I am the one who sinned. He steps forward. He takes on the wrath and guilt of the people. Says, let your wrath be poured out on me. Let them go free. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. I am the one who has sinned. Yet we see, obviously, as it is not difficult to find connections to Jesus here. Jesus, though in a greater way, is not saying I am the one who has sinned. I am now the perfect and spotless lamb. Let me take on the sins of the whole world, Jesus says. Steps forward, a king of kings, a shepherd, seeking to shepherd the flock and to protect them, to step into this place, to care for these lambs, a Messiah-like figure representing the people of God where David is ultimately saying, I am the shepherd of these people. I am responsible for them. Spare them, but take me. 
And Jesus, in a greater way, in John 10, says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. As Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice it seems as if the plague stops when David prays. It's right there when he steps forward. And I believe the key to the whole sequence here is in verses 17 and 18. And then we also see this depicted for us in a greater way, for it goes a little bit further. 1 Chronicles 21, verses 14 through 17, describe for us this situation as well in greater detail. Chronicles gives us extra details behind the scenes here. But he calls out to the Lord, and it's this picture where we see there is judgment and death. David and the elders praying and mourning, openly seeking God's mercy and grace. David stepping forward to be the substitute and take the bear of the punishment. The plague is stopped and halted. The angel orders David to set up an altar in worship of God by way of atonement there on the threshing floor, the ground zero for salvation. He atones for sin. He won't cheapen the sacrifice by taking it for free. He pays for it. Grace is free, but it ain't cheap. You ever heard that? Bonhoeffer talks about that idea of costly grace. Costs God everything, but it's free for you to receive. The altar... Here is this place where he builds an altar and offers sacrifices to the Lord. He atones this blood sacrifice that has been practiced throughout the Old Testament here in a way to represent the sin of the whole nation. Spare them, Lord. The Lord was receptive to prayer again. It's the same concept that we say when we look to the cross. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, help us, rescue us. Your name is salvation. And then we see on this site... I want us not to overlook and forget the sight that this is taking place. It is so significant. I've mentioned these things in the past. Some of this might be familiar to you. But on the, this ground zero, this threshing floor, a place that was used to thresh wheat, where the wheat would be winnowed, it would be thrown up into the air, it would first would be crushed with a threshing sledge. Then it would be thrown into the air. It was always built on top of a nice flat area on top of a mountain where the wind would come and it would be strategically placed in a way where as they would winnow the wheat, the wheat would fall to the ground and the chaff would be blown away and separated. Here it's on that location that there is wheat, this bread of life that is given for the people of God and the chaff that is taken away, the sin is then pulled away and burned in a place far away. Jesus talks about this in the New Testament as well. A place where death and life are at a crossroads, this temple, because that threshing floor became the site of the temple of God. If you were to look at 1 Chronicles chapter 21, it gives further details in regards to what has just took, taken place. Verse 27, 1 Chronicles 21, the Lord spoke to the angel and he put his sword back into the sheath. And at that time, David offered sacrifices when he saw. The Lord answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Then it says in verse 30, But David could not go in and inquire of the Lord at the tabernacle. He was terrified of the sword of the Lord of the angel. Verse, chapter 22, verse 1 says, Then David said, standing there at the threshing floor, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering before all of Israel. 
And then if you were to look at chapter 22 as it goes, David goes then on to make preparations for the building of the temple of God on that very threshing floor. He then gives instructions to his son Solomon. Solomon, God has told me that you are going to build the temple and you're going to build it on this very site. You're going to dig out the foundation here where this threshing floor took place, the location where that altar was, where he offered a sacrifice to stay away and halt the plague of mankind, of Israel there. We will now be the place where the temple will be constructed, where we will atone for the sins of people for centuries. And then it's on that very site where we see an extraordinary thing that takes place. A ground zero for salvation of Israel, a ground zero for the nation and the people that would come to that temple, but a salvation that would take place for all of mankind. For there is a greater David that comes one day. There will be a greater temple that will take place right there. His name is Jesus Christ. For he will take a cross, an altar of sorts. He will go to a cross right outside that very location of the threshing floor, that very location where Abraham uh, also offered Isaac on, the, uh, on that same mountain. He will take place there and he will be sacrificed. The place where God provided Abraham a ram for Isaac on Mount Moriah, that location. The place where Melchizedek, a king of Salem, came to bless Abraham. The same mountain where David ushers in the Ark of the Covenant, makes Jerusalem his capital city. The same mountain, the same site where David builds an altar to halt a national plague. The same mountain where the temple would be built. The same mountain where Jesus would come, cleanse the temple, prophesy his tearing down of that very temple and rebuilding it in three days through himself. This is the same mountain where outside those city gates, Jesus would be dragged, beaten, his hands would be nailed to a wooden cross and placed on a wooden altar hanging for all to be seen for to be crucified for your sin and for mine. From that mountain, we cry with David, save me, Hosanna, save us. Salvation comes flowing down from that place, from that mountain, like a river of healing life. A ground zero from salvation. A place as if that, that, that place had a seed that dropped into the ground in that place of destruction, the crucifixion of God. That from there, bursted forth a flower like the Chernobyl seed that came out and healed uh, mankind of cancer. This sense that this flower now grows as medicinal properties to save you from your sins. It's as if this seed that was planted grew up into this wooden tree, a cross, where Jesus would be, take, would be placed. And that wooden cross will one day in Revelation 22 be transformed into this picture for us, not only just a cross of death, but because of Jesus' resurrection and life, that cross will become a tree of life. For rather, Revelation 22 says, the tree of life was on each side of the city of the river there, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse the throne of God and the lamb that will be in the city and the servants will worship him. The site of salvation there in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, the cross there on the hill of Golgotha would be the salvation that is the site of salvation that extends from Jerusalem now here to Jaffrey for you and for me. <laughs> A place where we can go to Jesus Christ who bore that cross who took our shame, who took our sin 
For he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains and sorrows. And in turn, we regarded him stricken and struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion and sins, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment of our peace was upon him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep, just like David said. I am the good shepherd. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of me or of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb who was led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before his shears. He did not open his mouth. He was struck because of the people's rebellion. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely, to make a guilt offering. He will see his seed and he will prolong his days And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure and grace will be accomplished through Jesus. My righteous servant will justify the many. He will carry their iniquities. He bore the sin of many, and he interceded for the rebels like you and like me. (laughs) For while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will somebody die just for a person Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, rebels, enemies, Christ died for us. And much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It bids you to come, to receive these healing leaves from the tree of life, the tree of life that was made possible because of the cross of Jesus Christ. We come to the cross, we could say we come to the altar. In a moment, we're gonna be closing with the song, Oh, Come to the Altar. I want you to think about these truths as David built an altar to halt a plague for the people of Israel. The altar of Jesus Christ that has been placed, that he has placed, he has laid down his life for his friends. He has laid down his life for his enemies. He lays down his life on the cross for you and for me. And that cross stands as a testimony of salvation. And it stands as an invitation for you and for me. to Come to the cross. Come to the altar. Drink from the well. Jesus is calling you. For Hebrews 13 reminds us that Jesus was taken outside the gates, out into the place of shame and disgrace, and it bids us, as Hebrews says, let us go to him outside the gates. (laughs) Let us go to the altar that is built outside the gates to stay the plague of sin, to halt it and remove it from our lives. As Jesus says, the Son of Man will be lifted up like the bronze snake in the wilderness, like the altar that was built in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, like the temple that was built in order to atone the the sins of the people, like Jesus became the temple, the place where we find salvation, the place where we find atonement. Jesus' blood washes us white as snow. Jesus is lifted up to bring the antidote to the poison of sin that's found within all of us. Death and the grave is conquered by him. The question for us remains is do you believe these things? Do you trust in this Jesus? We're about to sing. Are you hurting and broken within? 
Are you overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? David prayed that. Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today. There's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows. Trade them for joy. From ashes, new life is born. Jesus is calling, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen to that. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you would speak to us today through this truth. You would encourage our hearts today, knowing that no matter what our past brings us to, no matter where we find ourselves today, you have offered forgiveness at the cross. Mercy is there for us and grace and joy. A new life is there before us, a new man. The old man has passed away. Behold, the new has come because of Jesus. Thank you for this. Thank you for your truths, for your word. Thank you for being our King of Kings. May God today you rescue and save us again. May you remind us of your grace and your love for us. God, may many come to the altar today and find salvation, find grace in our time of need. In Jesus' name.